Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest here. We have him down from his Yuba River farmstead in the Sierra. He spent much time in San Francisco. He was renowned for his role in the Beat Generation. He's won the Pulitzer Prize for his collection of poetry called Turtle Island. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. His books of poetry also include Regarding Wave, The Back Country, Left Out in the Rain, Passage Through India, and his new work, which was begun some 40 years ago and completed this past spring, published by Counterpoint, Mountains and Rivers Without End. Please welcome Gary Snyder to Let's Go Slide. Welcome to uh, the city. Thanks for coming out of the, the country. Well, I've been down in the city in and out for the last three weeks, so it's uh, no surprise to be here. <laughs> You've, uh, you're, you live on a farmstead in, uh, in the Yuba City watershed, Yuba River watershed. Can you describe uh, for our listeners where that, where that is and what it is like for you as a, as a place to live? Well, the Yuba River uh, comes into the feather uh, right about Marysville. And the watershed of the Yuba encompasses uh, several tens of thousands of miles of mainly ponderosa pine forest. Uh, we're up above the south Yuba River at 3,000 feet. As I like to say, in a mixed community of ponderosa pine, black oak, madrone, manzanita, black bear, deer, cougar, wild turkey, and wildcats. And lots of nice people. <laughs> Some of whom you describe as brilliant and cranky. Yes, mostly cranky <laughs> and brilliant, too. Uh, yeah, some of the uh, old, uh, you know, Ph.D. dropouts and uh, L.A. outlaws that uh, moved to the woods back in the early 70s uh, are still up there in the woods making communities happen and taking over county politics. What do you, you call them? Uh, at some point here, you, you referred to them as... Uh, old mountain Buddhist poetry green avant-garde types. Well, you know, that would apply to some of my neighbors, but that was the circle of old friends that I called together last April for a literally 40th anniversary to the day get-together uh, to r finish off, to sign off on the Mountains and Rivers Without End project. And those old mountain Buddhist anarchist types are my old circle of friends from San Francisco and Berkeley and Arcata. Arcadia. The, um, and when you say sign off on this project, this was a project that began, sort of the inspiration was a tea, April 8th, uh, 1956, that you had in Berkeley with a, a teacher of yours when you were attending Berkeley. How, uh, no, that was, um, that's okay. Saburo Hasegawa was the one I had tea with, Japanese painter, a abstract expressionist, uh, who encouraged me to write a poem in the mode of the long Far Eastern landscape scroll when I said, could I possibly do such a thing? He said, drink some tea. And he said, yes, you can do it. And Hasegawa-san died a year later of cancer. That was 1957. But at the Beat show up at the De Jung, they had one of his abstract expressionist paintings. I was happy to see it. Now describe for us the idea of a poetry, of, 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 of a poem and a scroll, and the mechanics of working a scroll. 
Well, of course, a scroll is, uh, a hand scroll is linear, and uh, some of those Far Eastern scrolls may be 30 feet long. You have to view them on a long table or unroll them a bit at a time. Um, linear, but possibly circular, as a circumambulation would be, moving through the seasons and moving through uh, cultures uh, and ecosystems. Uh, I made the effort to carry that over into language. Uh, and it took me 40 years of my own life to see how it might work. Could you have imagined uh, the, the duration of the project when you began it? Of course not. I couldn't imagine living that long even. <laughs> but uh, once I figured out that it was going to be a hard point to do and, and that it was shy and evasive and uh, would require a lot of etiquette from me, I relaxed and slowed down and said, however long it takes. And along the, uh, the way, you wrote many other poems. Um, how did you know that a poem fit in in this vision? Well, this is going to sound a little bit like woo-woo, but uh, different kinds of poetry have different kinds of vibrations and auras around them. And uh, any words or phrases or images that came to me with a certain kind of tingle, uh, I knew instantly belonged with the Mountains and Rivers Without End project, and they went into that set. Uh, and I worked on several, I worked on a dozen poems simultaneously sometimes over 10 or 12 years. Uh, and then the other poems, too. Sixteen books in uh, the intervening years. And nary a tingle from those for this project. Oh, different kind of tingle. Uh -huh. <laughs> different color aura. The, the idea was, was, uh, of, of mountains and rivers is, is complex, and part of it is the, the whole book, the whole set of poems is about what the idea is. But the idea that, that uh, a painting would represent a reality but is, in fact, also reality. That's what Dogen says. Uh, in fact, I opened the book with some quotes from Dogen who says, um, tweaking people as usual, um, unsurpassed enlightenment is a painting. The whole universe and the empty sky is all just a painting. Very postmodern. So could you replace the word poem for painting there? Uh, sure. Or a representation or a signification, perhaps. The, uh, and your poem ends by at last picking up the brush and the point of the, the ink from the page mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of ends. How did you, what, what sort of ceremony did you have when you said you signed off on this? We all got together at uh, the Rikyu, one of the better Japanese restaurants here in San Francisco, and had a five-hour Japanese dinner with sake. Now, a five-hour Japanese dinner, folks, does not mean a lot of food. <laughs> but it sure looks good. So, so it was just fine. And uh, how, how essential was the sake to this? Well, it has always been the spirit that counts. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any saying the equivalent in, in Japanese of uh, in vino veritas? I'm sure there is, but I, I think what they would say uh, is in wine is conviviality. Uh, the Japanese, you know, are very restrained and polite people, and so it takes sake to make them really talk to each other. The, uh, I'd like to hear one of the poems from from this epic of yours. Sure. Uh, and since I mentioned Dogen, uh, I'll read one that brings Dogen and the great 12th century Chinese poet uh, Su Dong Po uh, and some river runners up in Alaska uh, all together in it. It's called We Wash Our Bowls in This Water. Quote, the 1.5 billion cubic kilometers of water on the earth are split by photosynthesis, 
and reconstituted by respiration once every two million years. A day on the ragged North Pacific coast, getting soaked by whipping mist, rain squalls tumbling, mountain mirror ponds, snowfield slush, rock wash creeks, earfuls of falls, swirls of ridge edge snowflakes, swift gravelly rivers, tidewater crumbly glaciers, high hanging glaciers, shoreside mud pools, icebergs, streams looping through the tide flats, spume of brine, distant soft rain drooping from a cloud, sea lions lazing under the surface of the sea. We wash our bowls in this water. It has the flavor of ambrosial dew. Two. Beaching the raft, stagger out and shake off wetness like a bear. Stand on the sandbar, rest from the river being upwellings, side swirls, back swirls, curlovers, outripples, eddies, chops and swells, washovers, shallows, confluence, turbulence, wash seam, wavelets, riffles, saying, a hydraulic's a cross between a wave and a hole. You get a weir effect. A pillow rock's a total fold back over the hole. It shows spit on the top of the wave. A haystack's a series of waves at the bottom of a tight channel. There's a tongue of the rapids, the slick tongue, the V. Some holes are keepers. They won't let you through. Eddies, backflows, we say. Eddies are your friends. Current differential, it can suck you down. Vertical boils are straight up eddies spinning. Herringbone waves curl under and come back. Well, let's get going. Get back to the rafts. Swing the big oars, head into a storm. We offer it to all demons and spirits. May all be filled and satisfied. Om Magala Sai Swaha. Three. Sudungpo sat out one whole night by a creek on the slopes of Mount Lu. Next morning he showed this poem to his teacher. The stream with its sounds is a long broad tongue. The looming mountain is a wide awake body. Throughout the night, song after song, how can I speak at dawn? Old Master Zhang Tsung approved him. Two centuries later, Dogen said, sounds of streams and shapes of mountains. The sounds never stop and the shapes never cease. Was it Su who woke, or was it the mountains and streams? Billions of beings see the morning star, and all become Buddhas. If you, who are valleys, streams, and looming mountains, can't throw some light on the nature of ridges and rivers, who can? <laughs> Gary Snyder, reading from Mountains and Rivers Without End. 
Is it different hearing it to come aloud from your, from your throat than to hear it in your ear before you speak the words? You know, I almost utter these words aloud as soon as they come. Uh, I don't write poetry, I say it. And the writing comes a little bit even after that. Poetry is an oral art. It's a variety of song, it's a variety of chant, and it's one of our oldest arts. It goes, it's as old as language, which means 40 or 50,000 years old probably. Uh, writing is just a little new baby. Uh, so yeah, I love reading my poems aloud because then I learn about them. I learn how they really work. Do you find different rhythms each time you, you read uh, the passages aloud? No, I put the rhythms in when I made it. Uh, <laughs> what I learn is, like the musician learns, uh, slight variations on the melody and alternative ways to riff the, ryth the rhythm. But uh, basically it's in there. How would you riff a rhythm slightly differently? The rhythms of English are the play between the stressed and unstressed syllables. You can do an off stress, like an off beat, uh, or you can uh, do timing and speed up changes uh, that will actually make quite a difference. The, uh, one, of your, one of your poems here uh, is about hitchhiking the length of Highway 99, sort of the predecessor to I-5, um, and includes one line almost for each each ride you get, each person who carries you along as you make your way down, you know, from Seattle through Portland, Myrtle Creek, you know, Grants Pass into Redding, and back into San Francisco. Those were the days when I was a migratory uh, laborer scholar. Uh, and uh, my two points of travel were uh, uh, logging or firefighting or trail crew or lookout jobs up in the far north uh, of, this, of, of Washington. Uh, and uh, the Department of Chinese and Japanese at Berkeley. I went back and forth between the two, hitchhiking both directions, true. And uh, there was a lot of jazz in my ear then, so that's a poem with kind of a jazz beat. I don't know if there's a section that you could read just briefly here uh, it opens, that would capture that. Sure, it opens with, we're on our way, man, out of town. Go hitching down that Highway 99 Eating peanuts, I don't give a damn. If anybody ever stops, I'll walk to San Francisco. What the hell? That's where you're going? Why you got that pack? Well, man, I just don't feel right without something on my back. And um, get this. Air brakes on the log trucks hiss and whine. Stand in the dark by the stoplight. Big fat cars tool by. Drink coffee, drink more coffee, brush teeth back of shell. Hot shoes stay on the right side of that yellow line. And one more. Toledo, Castle Rock, freeway four lane. No stoplights and no crossings, only cars. And people walking, old hitchhikers, break the law. How do I know? The state cop told me so. <laughs> it's interesting also to hear sort of the, the patterns of the language seem to take on. I'm assuming this was written in the uh, in the uh, the fifties. Mm, Night Highway 99 was written in the early sixties. Early sixties. Uh, the the hitchhiking was in the mid fifties. How did your rhythms change over these forty years? Can you, can you read a poem and sort of date it by what was uh, going on in your ear? That's a great question. 
And to some degree, it's true, I can. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure, you know, where those rhythms came from. I knew that, I know that in the 50s and early 60s, we were all, as the whole uh, poetics of the beat movement was, uh, touched by jazz and touched by West Coast jazz, touched by bebop. And you can hear it in the rhythms of that time, like some of the great musical poems of Lou Welch. Uh, our poetics did not go into the rhythms of rock and roll. Too complex, too noisy. Uh, but I picked up uh, some rhythms from vernacular Indian poetry and the poet and the music of India after going to India in 1963. So I'm still studying that, you know. Where do my rhythms come from? And this is a, a mystery you're content to just be? Like Shelley says, you know, we must learn to be uh, comfortable with darkness and obscurity and no irritable grasping for a reason. <laughs> I, uh, I asked you in part about where you, where you live and the land that you take care of because I've, uh, I know, for instance, that in, in our culture it's common to ask you know, what it is somebody does and they define themselves by the job they have, the work they do. But if you ask, for instance, some American Indians, they will often describe who they are by the landscape that they take over and the, and the generations that they're responsible for. And this seems to be something that is also imbued in, in your own work. Yeah, but first I have to apologize. That wasn't Shelley that said that. That was Keats. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. I know somebody would have called you on that in an instant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm a, uh, and many of us are today, you know, you know, complex figures in the sense we don't fit into categories. I'm a backcountry intellectual, which is an oxymoron. Uh, uh, I'm a, people think, uh, I'm a local person that works with his, uh, with his watershed and with his local neighbors, uh, but I also um, fling myself out there on an international level trying to figure out what to do on uh, the environmental scale. And I teach at UC Davis 50% uh, time, so I um, spend a lot of time down in the great Central Valley where I love its flatness. And there are some wonderful images of... Uh of that flatness and what we have done to it and how it used to be a land where you could just walk over and you'd step on flowers every few feet. Covers the Ground, a poem that was inspired for me by my own travels down 99 south of Sacramento, but also John Muir's great essay, The Bee Pastures of California. You know, he didn't just write about the mountains. He wrote about other parts of the California landscape, too. And the Bee Pastures of California describes how, when he was a young man, he spent a whole month walking back and forth through the Great Central Valley, uh, sleeping wherever he stopped, and he said every inch of the way he was walking on flowers. <laughs> this, uh, and more in this, this remarkable book that uh, you can read many times and still discover uh, new nuance, new visions. Thank you very much for stopping by. Thank you. Gary Snyder. Mountains and rivers without end. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.